First off, who's excited for Christmas this year? Okay, good. Some good excitement. A couple years ago, uh, I, there was this new TV show that came out. Um, it was on NBC, and when the pilot aired, it was like a huge hit. And everyone started talking about it. Um, it was like one of the biggest successes for a pilot in TV show history. You guys know what TV show I'm talking about? This is Us. You're correct. And th this, this pilot was a huge hit. Um, if you haven't seen the show, it's too late. I'm going to ruin it for you right now. Okay, It's a great show. I mean, if you were going to watch it, you should, probably should have done it by now. Anyway, the, the first episode, um, it, it was this huge hit. And, and I'll tell you why. It's because the, the show started out following these four different characters on their birthday. And it started following these four different stories, these four different um, families. And uh, as, as the show progressed, it started to draw you in to each of these characters. All four of the characters you know, had something different going on. It started drawing you in. But then what really made it special, what really uh, took it over the top and why it was such a successful episode was at the end of the episode, all of a sudden, you find out that these aren't four separate stories that are going on. But this is actually one family, and all the stories converge into one point. All the, it's all drawn together, and you find out that actually the, the woman who was pregnant at the beginning, uh, that, that's the story of 30 years before when she's having her kids, and these are the three kids, the triplets that she has. And so all of a sudden you realize these, these four stories that seem to be separate come together. And this kind of storytelling is called uh, parallel narrative storytelling. Um, and there's a lot of different movies that'll do this and TV shows that'll do this. Um, but This Is Us kind of did it like perfectly where every, no one saw it coming really, um, unless you were really smart and you figured out somehow that they adopted a kid, you know. Um, but they did a great job at it and everyone loved it. Um, and, and, they, and this parallel narrative storytelling is the way you tell stories. You begin with separate stories, but then at some point they converge. And, and those stories become one story. What seemed to be separate at first becomes one. And we're going to take a look at Mark today, uh, the Gospel of Mark. And we're supposed to be doing a Christmas series, uh, Advent series, that we go through each Gospel uh, and take their account of the Christmas story. Um, and what's interesting is Mark doesn't start with the Christmas story at all. There is no Mary and Joseph in a manger. He doesn't even mention any part of that. He does something completely different. He, this is us is us. Is that, I think that's correct. He, this is us is us. Um, and here's what I mean. You're going to find out what I mean. This is how it starts in Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. So, at first glance, this might not seem like a very impactful 
paragraph. This might not seem like a huge deal, but Mark here is doing something. He's disassessing us. He's, he's drawing multiple storylines together, and he's saying, this is the climax. This is the moment you've been waiting for. He starts off, he says, the beginning. If I were to say, in the beginning, what would you guys think? God's created the heavens and the earth, right? You, you automatically, when, when I say in the beginning, and this is, this is American culture, you think Genesis 1. And, and back when Mark was writing this, you know, 2,000 years ago, um, this phrase, the beginning, would have immediately brought up to mind for the readers the story of creation. And so the first thing that Mark's trying to grab our attention with is that this story of Jesus is also the story of creation. It's the story of Eden. Genesis 1.1, it begins with, in the beginning, God created. And, he says, and it says, God said it was good. And he created, and it was good, and he created, and it was good. And then he created humans. He created you and I, mankind, in his image. And he said, it was very good. And, and at that moment, everything was perfect. There was shalom. There was this peace. There was this um, connectedness. Everything was as it should be. And so for two chapters... People get to experience this shalom. They get to experience everything as it was meant to be. But then, in Genesis 3, something happens. In Genesis 3, the shalom is broken, and sin enters the world. Because Adam and Eve believe the lie of Satan, of the serpent in the garden. They believe the lie that, you know what, maybe God is holding out on you, which could be a lie that Satan is still telling today, that God is holding out on you. You know what? You could do better on your own. And so Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the garden, and suddenly everything's not as it should be anymore. Suddenly uh, our relationship with God isn't as it should be anymore. Suddenly our relationship with one another isn't as it should be anymore. There's shame. Suddenly our relationship with the earth isn't as it should be anymore. And then in Genesis 3, something happens. God shows up, and he comes to Adam and Eve, and he talks to them for a little bit, and then he turns to the serpent. He turns to Satan, and he says this in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his ear. Heel here. You will strike his heel. Now this, it might not seem like much either, but this is actually the first prophecy, the first promise of God for a savior. Right here when he says, there is an offspring of this woman who is going to crush you. He's going to, he's going to crush your head. What he's saying is, I'm going to take care of this. One day I'm going to send someone and that that often he's going to be he's going to be a man and that man is going to crush satan he is going to fix the brokenness and so when mark starts with the beginning it's the, actually the same phrase as in the beginning in genesis 1 
When he starts with that phrase, he's saying, this, this is the story from the beginning, from creation. This isn't starting with this birth here. This started a long, long time ago. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And so he's saying there's another story that's, that's also being connected here. There's the prophets. There's Isaiah. He says Isaiah has, has talked about this. And if you read through Isaiah, you will see that over and over and over, there's talk about the Messiah. There's talk about this coming Christ who would fix what is broken in um, Isaiah 53, it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we continued, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It starts to sound a little more familiar now. God is saying, There's, you know that person that I was talking about earlier in, in Eden? I'm, gonna, I'm starting to give you a little more details about what he's going to be like when he comes. Still, though, this is 700 years before Jesus shows up. There's still a lot of waiting left to be done. There's still a lot of patience that the Israelites need to have. And then in uh, Mark, he, he quotes this section of scripture. He says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. This is actually a quote from Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, where Malachi says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And again, another prophet. So he's saying, look, there's all these stories that have been going on all throughout our history. We've got the story of Eden. We've got the story of the prophets. You could go into the story of David. All of these stories now, I want you to pay attention. They're converging here. In this moment, this is where the stories are converging. It says, this is the good news that we've been waiting for. This is the good news because the one we've waited for since the beginning of time, the one we've waited for since Genesis 3, the one we've waited for, the prophets talked about, the one we've waited for, that David talked, the one we've always been waiting for is come. And the waiting is finally over. You know, uh, Advent means the coming. And, uh, And so in the Advent season, what we do is we wait for the coming of Jesus. And so this season right now that we're in, um, we call it Advent because we're waiting, but we're kind of just remembering 
when Jesus came as a baby, right? This is the Advent season where we remember the advent of Jesus as a baby. But in reality, all year round, we are in an Advent season. Because as the Israelites waited for Jesus to show up as a baby, we wait for Jesus now today because he's going to return as a king. And this is why Mark starts out in this weird way that we're like, well, this isn't, this isn't the normal Christmas story. Like, where's the donkey and the manger? And, and where's all that? And Mark is trying to communicate to us a bigger story than just the Christmas story in the beginning. He's saying this is the, this is the climax of everything. When Jesus is born on earth, this is where everything comes together. All the stories run together here. He's disassessing us. And I think what's interesting is, is that the Israelites waited and waited, and they were pretty bad at waiting. And now, we had, they had at least 30 years of Emmanuel, 30 years of God with them, on, in flesh, walking on the dirt that we walk on, breathing the air that we breathe. God came. And then God was crucified, and God rose from the dead, and God ascended to be with the Father. And that's where he is, reigning. And, and as we wait now, the question is, how can we wait well? Because the truth is, I think most of us hate waiting. I, I like, really, really hate waiting. And as soon as uh, I started thinking about waiting, I thought about like a couple places. I thought about traffic, waiting in traffic when you're already 20 minutes late to get somewhere is like the worst. Waiting at the doctor's office I thought of. For some reason, like 30 minutes after your appointment is supposed to be, you're still in the waiting room, which the waiting room is like the worst room of all rooms. <laughs> uh, I, I think of being placed on hold, like on the phone. I don't know if you have, uh, actually I won't even get into it, but I've been placed on the phone a lot for like a couple hours before, and it like really set me off in ways that I did not expect. But <laughs> waiting is, is just really tough for all of us. But what I realized is people are willing to wait for some things. Um, the, I looked up what, what's been some of the longest lines people have waited in. And uh, a couple years ago, when the Frozen ride at Disney World opened, there was a 300-minute line. There was someone holding a sign that says, like, Three, line starts here, 300 minutes, for, to get on the Frozen ride, which lasts five minutes. It's a five-minute ride. There, there were people who paid over $100 to go stand in line for, five, for 300 minutes for a five-minute ride. Um, the Green Bay Packers. I don't know. If, are there any Packers fans out here? Boom. I know one, at least. My wife, kind of. Yeah. Um, the Green Bay Packers, to get season tickets for the Green Bay Packers, you have to get put on a waiting list. And actually what people do is they end up putting their kids on, on the waiting list because it takes up to 30 years to get season tickets to the Packers um, if you're on the waiting list because that's how, how long people hold on to those tickets. And so people will be like, well, I'll, I'll be dead by the time I get the tickets. So I guess maybe my kid will want them. People will wait 30 years. And what I've realized is people are willing to wait for things that they think are worth it. 
was, when I was in college, uh, I slept outside of a Chick-fil-A one night because it was the grand opening of the Chick-fil-A in Tucson. And the first 100 people at the Chick-fil-A got 52 free meals. I know, you're like, whoa. <laughs> Suddenly we have a lot more people who would be okay sleeping outside of Chick-fil-A. And in college it was like a huge deal. 52, it was supposed to be uh, food for a year, which was like one meal a week for a year, which doesn't exactly equal food for a year. But I was, um, I was so excited to wait all night because I, I felt like this is worth it. And the question I want to ask is, do we believe God is worth it? Is God worth waiting for? So we're going to talk really quick about what it means to wait well for the God who I believe is worth it. I mean, I think there's three big things uh, that come with waiting well. And the first is this. Waiting well means waiting eagerly. Over and over and over again in the Bible, when it talks about waiting on the Lord, it uses the phrase eagerly waiting. I'm going to read a couple of verses. We don't have them on the screen, so I'm going to shoot through them quick. Romans 8.23, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 1.7, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Galatians 5.5, 5, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Over and over and over again in Scripture, when it talks about waiting for the Lord, it talks about waiting eagerly. And when I think about waiting eagerly, I think about little kids on Christmas Eve. And I remember, for me, on Christmas, like, waiting for Christmas was, like, the hardest thing to do. We had this little rug, like, I guess it's a rug. We hung it on our door, and it was a rug with a Christmas tree on it. And we would put little ornaments on that rug to count down to Christmas. Every day, we would put one ornament on the rug in December. And me and my brother and my sister, we would literally fight over who got to put, like, an ornament on a rug on a wall, which sounds like the craziest thing to me right now. Like, why would I ever care about that? But I did. I was so eager for Christmas to come. And then on the 24th, it feels like, oh my gosh, it's almost here. It's never going to come, though, because I've, I've got to wait a whole other day. And you, of course, you're going to bed early because you're like, if I go to sleep, then I'm going to wake up. It's going to be Christmas. So you're in bed at like 6 o'clock, <laughs> just like wide-eyed waiting. And in the morning, you get up way too early, 5.30 a.m. For those of you who have little kids, you probably know what I'm talking about, but you get up early and you wake your parents up. And my parents had this rule that we couldn't, we had to all go down, uh, we had a two-story house, we all had to go down and into Christmas together. You know, like, we all had to wait and then do it together. And so my parents were like, well, we're going to get ready. And they would take what felt like an eternity to get ready. And I think they did it on purpose just to mess with us. But we, we sat at the top of the stairs, like, itching, like, pulling our hair out, we've got to get, like, we've got to go see if Christmas came. And then finally, my dad would walk out with the camera, guess what day it is, you know, doing the cheesy dad <laughs> stuff. And we would run down the stairs, run in, and we would see, wow, Christmas is here, it's come. Like, all the, all, everything, we're so excited for Christmas, so eager for Christmas. And I wonder, am I eager like that 
for the return of Jesus, for the return of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, um, he's writing to the Corinthian church, and he says this in chapter 5. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put, our, put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, Paul, he likens being on this earth to being in a tent. He's like, I'm camping. Essentially, I'm just camping here. This isn't my permanent spot. This isn't where I'm going to be forever. And he says he, he groans to go home. I don't know if you've been camping for a couple days, though, and when everyone starts to smell and you're tired of getting up at like 3 a.m. because the sun comes up and it's super bright in the tent, but you've got that groaning of like, man, I just want to get back home. I just want to get home and like sleep in my own bed and... This is what he's like, I'm groaning to go home. I'm groaning to see Jesus. And he says, it's, it's not that I, I hate it here. It's not that I want to be unclothed. It's not that I, that is terrible, but the thing is, it's not home. It's just temporary. It's just a tent. And I think sometimes we can begin to acquire so many trinkets and toys and fun stuff that we forget that we're waiting we forget that we should be eagerly awaiting Jesus because we're so caught up in the here and the now. We're so caught up in the temporary that sometimes we forget about the eternal. So we wait eagerly, but then we also wait expectantly or confidently. Romans 8, 19 says, For the creation waits in eager, there it is again, eager, expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Hope is a confident expectation that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Um, I was thinking what it looks like to be in confident expectation of something. Um, and I, I started to think, uh, we have some friends who live in Tucson. Uh, they actually have eight kids, which is crazy. But that's not even part of the story. Uh, <laughs> they, they have eight kids, and... They love the Cavs, and they're real Cavs fans. They aren't like the LeBron Cavs fans. They also like, um, you know, they also like the Browns, which is hard to do. Well, I guess they're pretty good this year. Um, but anyway, they're real Cavs fans. They love it. They watch every game. Um, and in the playoffs last year, the Cavs were playing the Pacers, and I think the quarterfinals. And in Game Five, something crazy happened, uh, and they caught it on video. Yes. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. All right. So, this video went pretty viral. You know, they were just talking about it on ESPN. They were, you know, people were retweeting it. It got a couple million views. Uh, it got really big. And I think why it got so big is because people were amazed at the confident expectation of little Dave. <laughs> Dave is like 
six, seven, I don't even know how old he is, but he's like six or seven years old. And as soon as the shot goes up, he turns around and he says, game. Like he knows, he knows with confident expectation that ball is going in. And I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, this is real or if they maybe rewinded it and rewatched it and like set it all up, who knows? Um, it might be real. I like to believe in my heart it's real because it's more magical that way. But uh, there's a confident expectation there. And I think when we know that the outcome is going to be in our favor, when we know what the outcome is going to be, we experience the now in a different way. When you uh, re-watch a game, like if, if you ever, I don't know if people do this, but I don't really, but if you re-watch like a football game that you've already seen before, they're replaying it from the year before or something, you watch it in a completely different way than watching it the first time, right? The first time you're on pins and needles, you're like, oh my gosh, are they going to win? Are they going to lose? What's going to happen? But once you already know the outcome, you already know how it's going to end, watching it becomes a different experience. For watching a game, it kind of becomes a little boring. But for life, when we already know the outcome, it changes how we live in the, in the here and now. Suddenly, things that might have before really stressed us out and really been a huge deal become a little bit smaller. We begin to, to see with a little more perspective, and we begin to live with a little more of an eternal mindset. When we know the ending and we wait with confident expectation, it changes how we experience the here and now. So we wait eagerly, we wait expectantly. Finally, we wait preparedly. I don't know if that's a real word. Um, I, I typed it into Google and there was one website that said it was a real, real word. So we're gonna say it's a real word, preparedly. Like waiting in preparation. I could have just said that, but. Uh, and, and here's what I want you guys to understand is that prepare, waiting doesn't mean you do nothing. Waiting doesn't mean like I just sit here and do nothing. Um, when I was thinking about last Christmas, I realized it was a lot different than this Christmas because we didn't have uh, our little baby Judah. Um, and if you on the way out want to see that cute, cute baby, <laughs> he is here. Um, but I remember right when we found out that Sarah was pregnant, we were at actually my brother's wedding, which he took a pregnancy test. And from that point on began the waiting for the baby. We were like, oh my gosh, we're going to have a baby. And we were excited. And, and we didn't just do nothing at that point. We didn't just wait. We waited and we prepared. What I mean is that all of a sudden, like that third bedroom in our house needed new carpet and new paint and new baseboards. And we started buying all this like baby stuff and getting all these baby gifts. And Sarah started taking like vitamins for the first time. And uh, <laughs> we like, like all these things, are, we started reading books. We started taking this class online about like what it's like to have a baby, which was super not helpful. And like, the whole time leading up to it, we're preparing and we're preparing. We're preparing physically, we're preparing mentally, we're preparing emotionally and spiritually. Because when he came, like everything changed for us. And I remember when he came and I looked into his eyes and 
you know, I didn't cry, but Sarah was probably crying. Um, and I, I think waiting doesn't mean we do nothing. In fact, it might mean we are doing more than ever before. When I found out that we were waiting to have a baby, all of a sudden I was way more busy. I was doing way more than I was before I found out I was waiting. Um, James, in, in uh, James chapter 5, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says, wait like the farmer waits. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a farm or seen a farmer, but farmers get up like really early. Like usually a farmer is up before the sun and at 4 a.m. they're out there like working and they work all day. And by the time the sun goes down, they're coming back in. And especially in this day, when they didn't have the technology that we have today for farming, I mean, those guys worked hard. But it says that at the same time, they're waiting. They're waiting for their crops to grow. Because waiting doesn't mean we do nothing. It means we remember who's in control of everything. It means that suddenly we, we have an eternal purpose and we wait knowing what's going to be accomplished. When we live with anticipation for Jesus to come back, we don't waste our lives our lives actually become more meaningful. They have an eternal purpose. Um, Jesus, in Luke 15, he tells a story. It's probably a story most of you guys uh, might be familiar with. It's the story of the prodigal son. And I'll give you the Cliff Notes version since uh, you might have heard it before. But essentially, there's this son, and he wants his inheritance from his father. And so he goes to his father, and he says, Dad, give me the money. I want it. And essentially what he's saying to the dad is, I would rather you be dead and I have your stuff than have you. And surprisingly, the dad says, okay. And he gives the son the money. And the son goes off. And the Bible says that he wastes, wastes his wealth on wild living. He spends all the money on this wild living that he does. Totally irresponsible. Just blows it all. And he ends up at this farm. And he's feeding the pigs at the farm. And he's looking at the pig food, the slop. And he's looking at it and thinking, gosh, I wish I could have a bite of that. I'm starving out here. I don't have anything to eat. I don't have anything at all. And then it says he comes to his senses and he realizes, man, even the servants that my father has live better than this. At least they can eat. They live better than this. And so he makes this plan to go home and apologize to his father. And it picks up in Luke 15, and it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. While he was still a long way off. The only way the father sees the son from a long way off as if the father has been waiting. 
if the Father has kept his eyes on the horizon, if he's every morning, every night, every day looking to the horizon, knowing maybe my son will come back, maybe my son will appear over the mountain, maybe he'll show up. And the Father is waiting. And the truth is, we wait on the Lord because he has waited for us. He's waited for, for me, for you. He's been sitting on the porch waiting for us to come home. And then when we do, we get the opportunity, the joyous opportunity of living a life of waiting for him. See, we're, we're going to take communion in a second. Um, and Tim and the band are going to come up and play a song. And um, When we take communion, we're, we're doing two things. Um, well, more than two things, but we're doing two big things. Um, the first thing that we're doing, when we take the bread and we take the blood, which is symbolic of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, we are remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. We are remembering that Jesus, that God waited for us by sending his son to die on the cross for us. The second thing that happens when we take communion, the Bible says that we proclaim his death until he comes again. So the first thing that happens is we remember that he waited, and the second thing that happens is we remember that we're waiting, and we proclaim we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We wait on the Lord with eager expectation as we prepare for an eternity with him. And that's what, that's what Mark wants us to understand here in Mark 1, is that our waiting is redeemed when we wait on the right thing. That our waiting is redeemed when we wait on the Lord. We wait on the one who waited for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, even though we didn't deserve it, you waited for us. That even though we have run from you, you've pursued us. You've waited with your arms open for us to return. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning that that hasn't come back to our waiting Father, they would begin to question what it would mean to do that, what it would mean for their life. Lord, and I thank you that you call us to a life of waiting, a life that's not empty, but full, more full than we could ever imagine. I thank you that you show us how to wait. I thank you that you are worth waiting for. Jesus, I just pray that this Christmas season, you would give us an eternal perspective, that we wouldn't forget that we are waiting, that we wouldn't get so comfortable in all the stuff and the Christmas and the presents and the whatever else, that we would forget that this time we point back to when you came as a baby, that we, we point back to when you died for us, but we also 
wait expectantly forward for when you'll come again and set everything right, consummate your kingdom. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.